You're Within the Norms, the blog that explores boundaries of medical science and law. Reported by youairwithinthenorms.com Norman J. Clement RPH, DDS, Norman L. Clement Farm Tech, Malachi F. McCandle Farm D, Belinda Brown Parker, in the spirit of Joseph Salvo Esquire Incorporated. T. Spirit of Rev. In the spirit of Walter R. Clement B.S., M.S., M.B.A., Harvey Jenkins M.D., Ph.D., C.T. Vivian, Jelani Zimbabwe Clement, B.S., M.B.A., in the spirit of the Han. Patrice Lumumba, in the spirit of Erlen Clement S.R., Walter F. Wren III, M.D., Julie Killingworth, Leslie Pompey M.D., Christopher Russo, M.D., Nancy Seafelt, Willie Gignard B.S., Joseph Webster M.D., M.B.A., Beverly C. Prince M.D., Fax, Neil Arnand, M.D., Richard Call, M.D., Leroy Baylor, J.K. Joshi M.D., M.B.A., Adrienne Edmondson, Esther Hyatt Ph.D., Walter L. Smith B.S., in the spirit of Brom Fisher Esquire, Michelle Alexander M.D., Cud Joe Wilding B.S., Martin Najoku, B.S., R.P.H., in the spirit of Deborah Lynn Shepard, Barris E. Muchet, Strategic Advisors. Content has been preserved in its original form and syntax. Modifications were made only to protect private citizens' interests and facilitate readability. Dash. Why should the Supreme Court take this case? The article was republished in the online magazine Daily Remedy. On the Making of Historic Ruan Khan vs. the United States. By Shulu Ruan, M.D., December 25, 2020. Introduction. This case presents the court with an opportunity to evaluate the federal statute 21 CFR subsection 1306.04 and the related Supreme Court case, United States v. Moore, 423 U.S. 122, which was established in 1975. This statute is confusing, and its applications by district and appellate courts are often inconsistent, or even conflicting. The key phrase, outside the usual course of professional practice, derived from subsection 1306.04 and more, is so vague that it essentially becomes whatever the paid government experts say it is. Not only is this standard subject to different expert opinions, but the more case law is subject to the caprice of the courts. Its equivocal uses have resulted in many healthcare professionals being unjustly convicted as drug pushers. This criminal standard has a chilling effect on clinicians who in good faith prescribe controlled medications to treat their patients. Under the present law, good faith and legitimate medical purposes are not even an allowable defense. This is unfair. I respectfully make this plea to the court, the misinterpretation and misapplication of subsection 1306.04 and more is outside the usual course of professional practice rendered my criminal proceedings fundamentally unfair and violated my due process rights. Factual Background and Procedural History Physicians Pain Specialists of Alabama, PPSA, was founded by Dr. John Patrick Couch in 1998. Dr. Couch's primary specialty was anesthesia. He achieved four medical board-slash-subspecialty board certifications, TR. February 13, 2017, p. 5453-54. My primary specialty was physical medicine and rehabilitation. F achieved eight board slash subspecialty board certifications, TR. February 14, 2017, p. 5644. Both Dr. Couch and myself were fellowship trained interventional pain specialists, TR. February 13, 2017, p. 5451, TR. February 14, 2017, p. 5640. In fact, 
I was the 81st physician in the nation and the second in the state of Alabama, who became board certified by the American Board of Interventional Pain Physicians, ID, P. 5643. When I first joined PPSA in 2003, it had only seven employees, ID. 5674. To better serve patients of PPSA, Dr. Couch and I founded C and our pharmacy in late 2010. By 2015, PPSA and C and our pharmacy had close to 60 employees, TR. February 14, 2017, P. 5648. Despite its rapid growth, PPSA had always maintained its policies of no cash payments and all patients require referrals since its inception in 1998. At the time of our arrest in May, 2015, PPSA had 8,000 active patients, TR. February 13, 2017. P. 5,455-56, including 445 patients on spinal infusion pump therapy, TR. February 8, 2017. P. 4,834. In patients who had failed other conventional therapies and could not tolerate further opioid dosage increase due to side effects, we surgically implanted spinal infusion pumps to deliver minute amount of opioid directly into the spinal canal. This advanced therapy could provide improved pain control and reduce the overall systemic opioid dose by a factor of 100 to 200, TR. February 15, 2017, P. 5944 to 45. ALF 3 versions of the indictments allege that Dr. Couch and I practice not for a legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice, in violation of Controlled Substances Act, CSA. In the second superseding indictment, it states, Ruan and Couch ran what was, in essence, a pill mill. Their primary method of pain management was writing multiple prescriptions for high doses of Schedule 11, IL, 4 controlled substances, P. 8. Title 21. Code of Federal Regulations, Section 1306.04a, states that a valid prescription for a controlled substance must be issued for a legitimate medial purpose by an individual practitioner acting in the usual course of his professional practice. Id, p. 4-5. Both Dr. Couch and myself had filed pretrial motion, Doc. 376 and Doc. 374, respectively, seeking counts dismissal or some or the charges alleging our violation of CSA, for example, my motion specifically argued. The provisions of the CSA at issue here, 21 U.S.C. subsections 841 and 846, violated the due process clauses of the 5th and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution, because those provisions are unconstitutionally vague, sections 641 and 640 or Title Act are vague and constitutionally infirm, because the statutory framework, controlling regulatory authority, and case law failed to define the conduct proscribed by the Act with sufficient definiteness that a physician would know what conduct is prohibited and, therefore, encourages arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Doc. 374, p. 1. Judge Grenade denied our motions, and the jury trial began on January 4, 2017. However, there were many discrepancies between the indictments and the actual trial presentation. To give one example, the indictments repeatedly stated that we practice not for a legitimate medical purpose, yet, in the prosecutor's opening statement, Mr. Bodnar actually conceded that we practice for a legitimate medical purpose. A lot of patients that went to PPSA, had legitimate medical problems where pain medicine may have been appropriate. But just because there is legitimate medical need for controlled substances does not make the prescription legal if it is prescribed outside the usual course of professional practice. TR. January 5, 2017. P. 27. A lot of patients that came there were legitimate patients with legitimate pain, 
there were definitely some that were treated very appropriately in his office. There is no question of that, that there were certain cases where Dr. Ruan and Dr. Couch did a really good job for their patients, most will have legitimate pain, and opioids and other pain killers for people with legitimate pain is in most cases for a legitimate medical purpose. But there has to be the second prong, was it also in the usual course of professional practice? Id, p. 45-46. The above statements squarely show that we practiced for a legitimate medical purpose even in the government's own eyes. Mr. Bodnar would not have said so had there been a scintilla of evidence showing the contrary. After a seven-week jury trial, Dr. Couch was convicted on all of the counts charged, while I was convicted on 12 counts involving RICO, controlled substances, healthcare fraud and anti-kickback conspiracies, and substantive drug and money laundering counts, I was acquitted of one substantive drug count, namely count 10. I was sentenced to 252 months imprisonment, 4 years supervised release and $15.239.369.93 restitution. Respecting my direct appeal, the 11th Circuit panel reversed and remanded on count 16, affirming all other convictions. My petition for an on-bank hearing was subsequently denied on November 4, 2020. Analysis Vagueness of 21 CFR subsection 1306.04 and its conflicting interpretations by district and appellate courts. Relevant federal law and more case law. Under the CSA, it is unlawful for any person knowingly and intentionally to distribute or dispense a controlled substance. 21 USCS subsection 841A. Although the CSA makes exceptions to this prohibition for certain individuals who are registered as practitioners under the Act, such as physicians and pharmacists, this court has held that these practitioners are still subject to criminal prosecution when their activities fall outside the usual course of professional practice. United States v. Moore, 1975, 423 U.S. 122, 124, 96 South Court 335, 46 liters. Ed. 2D 333. In Moore, the defendant, Dr. Moore, a physician, was convicted of violating 21 U.S.C.S. subsection 841A, 1, for prescribing large quantities of methadone to drug addicts and charging sliding scale fees based on the amount of methadone prescribed. The court explained that even though the physician could be prosecuted for the relatively minor offense relating to issuing of prescriptions in violation of subsection 829, he was not exempted from prosecution under subsection 841A, 1, for the significantly greater offense of acting as a drug dealer. CSA, however, does not define what the outside the usual course of professional practice is. In fact CSA text does not even contain this term. CSA convictions rely on relevant regulations such as 21 CFR subsection 1306.04. In our case, United States v. Ruan, 966 F.3D 1101, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 21367, 11th Sir. 2020, the 11th Circuit stated that such prescriptions are only lawful if they are issued for a legitimate medical purpose in the usual one course of the licensed healthcare professional's professional practice. C21 CFR subsection 1306.04, id, at 8. Thus, the 11th Circuit explicitly expressed that the usual course of professional practice referred to should be of that individual practitioner's usual course of professional practice, not someone else's. Reasoning along this line, my usual course of professional practice in the capacity of a well-trained board-certified interventional pain specialist ought to be different from that of government expert witnesses, such as Drs. David Greenberg and Tricia Altman, because they were not pain management specialists. Discuss later. 
confusion and vagueness of 21 CFR subsection 1306.04 and why the court should take the instant case in United States v. Davis, 2019, 139 South Court 2319, 204 liters. Ed. 2D757, 2019 U.S. Lexus 4210, the court held. W. Hen Congress passes a vague law, the role of courts under the Constitution is not to fashion a new, clearer law to take its place, but to treat the law as a nullity and invite the Congress to try again. The doctrine prohibiting vague laws rests on the twin constitutional pillars of due process and separation of powers. Vague laws contravene the first essential due process of law that statutes must give people of common intelligence fair notice of what the law demands of them. Vague statutes threaten to hand responsibility for defining crimes to relatively unaccountable police, prosecutors, and judges, eroding the people's ability to oversee the creation of laws they are expect to abide. Id, at 766. Lack of statutory definition of usual course of professional practice and legitimate medical purpose and conflicting interpretation by the 5th and 11th circuits and district courts. Neither usual course of professional practice nor legitimate medical purpose has any statutory definition. As mentioned before, CSA convictions rely on the languages used in related regulations, namely 21 CFR subsection 1306.04. Unfortunately, this statute does not define these terms either. It is not even clear whether subsection 1306.04 treated these terms as one element, i.e. legitimate medical purpose, or two elements, i.e. legitimate medical purpose and usual course of professional practice. Most appellate courts and district courts interpreted subsection 1306.04 as having two elements, but the Fifth Circuit, the predecessor of the Eleventh Circuit held differently. See below. Remarkably, subsection 1306.04 is stated in an affirmative tone, for it to be effective, or valid, however, when a statement in a negative tone, for example, for it to be ineffective, or invalid, was used by the district and appellate courts, either to secure or sustain convictions the problem becomes messy. For example, in United States v. Rosen, 582F.2D1032, 1978 U.S. App. Lexus 8109, 5th Sir. 1978, the 5th Circuit stated. To convict, in violation of 21 U.S.C.S. 841A, 1, that he did so other than for a legitimate medical purpose and in the usual course of professional practice. Id, at 1033, Rosen Court Language, RCL. By contrast, in United States v. Feldman, 2016 U.S. Dist. Lexus 66868, MDFL, 2016, the district court stated. Dr. Feldman prescribed controlled substances for other than legitimate medical purpose not in the usual course of professional practice. Id, at 5, Feldman Court Language, FCL, emphasis added, evidently, the Feldman Court considered subsection 1306.04 offense involving two elements, unlike the Fifth Circuit. In its instruction on the element of offense for violation of 21 U.S.C. 84101, Modern Federal Jury Instruction, MFJI, states, first, second third, that the defendant dispensed the drug other than for a legitimate medical purpose and not in the usual course of professional practice. 3. 56, Modern Federal Jury Instruction Criminal, 56.02, Matthew Bender, June, 2020, emphasis added. MFJI explicitly uses FCL, not RCL. To argue that RCL and FCL are the same is to violate the law of non-contradiction, which dictates that contradictory propositions cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense, i.e., 
the two premises A is B and A is not B are mutually exclusive and therefore cannot be both true. The modifier not in FCL and MFJI makes it opposite in meaning respecting usual course of professional practice as in RCL. Since only one can be correct, and if I assume FCL and MFJI are correct, then RCL must be wrong. The problem is obvious because both FCL and RCL are interpretations of the same statute, namely 21 CFR subsection 1306.04, used in 21U. SC 84101, Convictions of Healthcare Professionals, and these opposing interpretations regarding the element of outside the usual course of professional practice indicate subsection 1306.04 and its application is confusing because even courts could not interpret or apply it without contradiction. Remarkably, the Fifth Circuit later dubbed RCL as an example of single element offense in United States v. Fuchs, 467F.3D889, 2006 U.S. App. LL Zeiss 25749, 5th Sir. 2006, Rosen listed as a single element of the offense that the dispensing be done other than for a legitimate medical purpose and in the usual course of professional practice, in other words, subsection 1306.04 was interpreted as a single element offense in RCL, in contrast to the two-element offense, interpreted and applied by other appellate and district courts that were on the side of FCL. In United States v. Orta Posario, 469 Fed. Apex. 140, 2012 U.S. App. 496 Fed. Apex. 140, 2012 U.S. App. Lexus 5569, 4th Sir. 2012, for example, the 4th Circuit interpreted subsection 1306.04 in a rather convoluted way. In order to prosecute the defendants, the government must prove that the controlled substance was not prescribed only for a legitimate medical purpose by an individual practitioner acting in the usual course of professional practice. 21 CFR subsection 1306.04, a, emphasis added, the word only is not only unnecessary, but mistaken. The above statement also contains RCL. Although most appellate and district courts used languages analogous to FCL, RCL was still frequently used improperly by the 11th and 5th circuits as well as certain by district courts within these sister circuits. For example, in United States v. Craig, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 24468, 5th Sir. 2020, the 5th Circuit, without using the term single-element offense, held, later cases in our court, have upheld convictions for distributing a controlled substance under 21U, SC subsection 841 when the government proves, 1, 2, and, 3, that, the doctor, did so other than for a legitimate medical purpose and in the usual course of, the doctor's, professional practice, for example, United States v. Evans, 892F.3D692, 703, 5th Sir. 2018. Notice RCL was used in Craig. Further, RCL was cited by several district courts in the 5th and 11th circuits, for example, United States v. Webman, 2014 U.S. Dist. 27504, NDGA, 2014, United States v. Roland, 2016 U.S. Dist. Lexus 196922, NDGA, 2016, United States v. Rubel, 2016 U.S. Dist. Lexus 58972, SOGA, 2016, United States v. Buckingham, 2018 U.S. Dist. Lexus 210350, NDL, 2018, United States v. Gaten 2018 U.S. Dist. Lexus 233935, MDFL, 
2018. Similarly, the 11th Circuit has used RCL in many of its appellate rulings, for example, in 2020 alone, in United States v. Ignasiak, 808 Fed. Apex. 709, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 9774, United States v. Bacon, 809 Fed. Apex. 757, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 11514, United States v. Uriel, 977 F.3D1155, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 32102, and in our case, United States v. Ruan, 966F.3D1101, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 32102, 11th Sir. 2020, in order to secure a conviction for unlawfully dispensing under subsection 841, a 1, the government must prove that the defendants dispensed controlled substances for other than legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice. United States v. Osmot, 805F.3D1018, 1035, 11th Sir. 2015, quoting Ignasiak, 667F.3D at 1227. The above quoted statement, literally, means that my practice was inside, rather than outside, the usual course of professional practice. Since the prosecutors had already explicitly conceded that our practice was for legitimate medical purpose, shown earlier, and the 11th Circuit cited Asmal using RCL and concluded that our practice was in the usual course of professional practice, my convictions, therefore, require reversal. Circuit courts differing opinions respecting no legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice. In United States v. Rotskafer, 178 Fed. Apex. 145, 2006 U.S. App. Lexus 10504, 3rd Sir. 2006, the 3rd Circuit held, there is considerable room to doubt whether the distinction between the no legitimate medical reason and the outside the usual course of professional practices standards is of any importance. Nelson 383 F.3D at 1231, 10th Sir. 2004. Several courts have held that there is no difference in the meanings of the statutory phrase, in the usual course of professional practice and the regulations phrase, legitimate medical purpose. United States v. Kirk, 584 F.2D 773, 784, 6th Sir. 1978-0, the Fourth Circuit of Appeals goes even further holding that the without medical purpose standard that Rotskafer challenges is more strict than, the outside the usual course of professional practices standard required by Moore. United States v. Kwong, 18F.2D1132, 1138, 4th Sir.1994. As the Nelson observed, foot is difficult to imagine circumstances in which a practitioner could have prescribed controlled substances within the usual course of professional practice but without a legitimate medical purpose. Similarly, it is difficult to imagine circumstances in which a practitioner could have prescribed controlled substances with a legitimate medical purpose and yet be outside the usual course of professional practice. 383 F.3D at 1231. In United States v. Armstrong, 550 F.3D 382, 2008 U.S. App. Lexus 25289, 5th Sir. 2008, the Fifth Circuit noted that the two clauses legitimate medical purpose and usual course of professional practice are often used interchangeably. Id, at 395, it further acknowledged that for other than legitimate medical purpose places a heavier burden on the government than otherwise required to establish criminal liability than outside the usual course of professional practice. 
United States v. McIver, 479F.3D550, 559, 4th Sir. 2006, citing United States v. Allure, 430F.3D681, 690-91, 4th Sir. 2005. In our case, United States v. Couch, 2016 U.S. Dist. Lexus 177947, SDL, 2016, Judge Grenade denied our motions asking for dismissing some of the counts relating to CSA violations in the second indictment, where the vagueness of subsection 841, a 1, and subsection 846 was raised. In that motion, we specifically challenged the vagueness of the language legitimate medical purpose and usual course of professional practice. In denying our motion, Judge Grenade stated, No case law is before the court suggesting that courts have grappled with what qualifies as not for a legitimate medical purpose or outside the usual course of professional practice. Instead, cases have repeatedly upheld convictions for physicians who abuse their exemption under the CSA. Id, at 4. However, based on the widespread and long-standing history of the misinterpretation of 21 CFR 1306.04 shown above, Judge Grenade's foregoing statement is inaccurate. Furthermore, the touted success of guilty convictions and affirmations based on the inconsistent and even contradictory interpretation and application of law runs afoul of the constitutional rights of the accused and renders the trial and appellate criminal proceedings fundamentally unfair. The court should take the instant case to revisit these discrepancies in the interpretation of 21 CFR 1306.04 in CSA convictions and exercise its supervisory power to clarify and correct them for the lower court so as to set a uniform standard in interpreting and applying this confusing federal law. This is the first reason that the court should take the instant case. The prosecutor's concession of our legitimate medical purpose and why my convictions should be reversed. On the aforementioned basis, namely that not for a legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice are used interchangeably and that the former is even considered a heavier burden than the latter, my convictions, then, require reversal because the prosecution had squarely conceded that we prescribed controlled medications for a legitimate purpose. Recall that, in his opening statement, Mr. Bodnar stated, There were definitely some that were treated very appropriately, there were instances where Dr. Ruan and Dr. Couch did really a good job for their patients, and opioids, for people with legitimate pain is in most cases for a legitimate medical purpose. But there has to be the second prong, was it also in the usual course of professional practice? T.R. January 5, 2017, p. 46. When Mr. Bodnar stated but there has to be the second prong, he implied that we had passed the first prong, namely for a legitimate medical purpose. Pursuant to the aforementioned criteria, we should never have been convicted for CSA violations. On the other hand, the 11th Circuit in its ruling of our direct appeal cited that we acted not for a legitimate medical purpose or its equivalent more than 20 times. The 11th Circuit's opinion was at odds with the trial evidence presented, because our trial could not have presented evidence consistent with our practice acting not for a legitimate medical purpose, as Mr. Bodnar had conceded this in his opening statement. Trial court provided erroneous jury instruction respecting crime element and tailored its jury instruction to the prosecutor's opening statement. On day one of the trial, before the prosecutor gave his opening statement, Judge Grenade gave the following jury instruction. For each of those substantive counts, can be found guilty, first. Second third, that the defendant did not have a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice for doing so. T.R. January 5, 2017, p. 16. I will refer this instruction as version 1. In it there is the sentence, did not have a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course or prorus 1 practice, which is the RCL. 
This instruction is erroneous because it is diametrically opposite low that of MFJI, which states first, second, third, that the defendant dispensed the drug other than for a legitimate medical purpose and not in the usual course of medical practice. 3. 5. Modern Federal Jury Instruction Criminal, 56.02, Matthew Bender, June, 2020. Emphasis added. This error is a serious one because it contradicts MFJI on the element of the offense. It shows that Judge Grenade did not understand subsection 1306.04 and she incorrectly stated the law when she gave the jury instruction, instructing the jury to find the defendants guilty, even if we practiced within the usual course of professional practice. This further shows that the language of subsection 1306.04 is vague and confusing, even Judge Grenade failed to correctly understand it, let alone properly apply to. Rule 24.1a of the Supreme Court states, at its option, the court may consider a plain error not among questions presented but evident from the record and otherwise within its jurisdiction to decide. In Silber v. United States, 1962, 370 U.S. 717, 8 liters. Ed. 798, 82 South Court 1287, the Supreme Court held that while ordinarily we do not take note of error not called to the attention of the Court of Appeals not properly raised here, that rule is not without exception. The court has the power to notice a plain error though it was not assigned. Citation omitted, in exceptional circumstances, especially in criminal cases, appellate courts, in the public interest, of their own, notice errors to which no exception has been taken if the errors are obvious, or if they otherwise seriously affected the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of judicial proceedings. Citation omitted. Whether this error is plain enough is up to the court, nonetheless, it is a serious error, especially considering that not only did Judge Grenade fail to recognize it, but the Eleventh Circuit has been unable to recognize this decades-long error. The court should use this instant case to, 1. Revisit this long-standing issue problematic interpretation and application of subsection 1306.04 and, 2. Notice and correct the aforementioned jury instruction error by Judge Grenade pursuant to Rule 24.1a. On day 28 of the trial, Judge Grenade gave the jury the following charge. The defendant can be found guilty of each offense only if all of the following facts are proved, 1, 2, 3, the defendant did not have a legitimate medical purpose to do so or did not do so in the usual course of professional practice. T.R. February 17, 2017, p. 6235. Thus a medical doctor has violated section 841 when the government has proved beyond a reasonable doubt that the doctor's actions were either not for a legitimate medical purpose or were outside the usual course of professional practice. Id, p. 6236. I will refer to the above instructions as version 2. Version 1 and version 2 differ significantly. A. The RCL in version 1 was no longer seen in version 2. B. What replaced RCL was the statement, the defendant did not have a legitimate medical purpose, or did not do so in the usual course of professional practice, which resembled FCL and MFJI. This change happened after Judge Grenade had heard Mr. Bodnar's opening statement in which he had conceded that our practice at PPSA was for a legitimate medical purpose, and that the prosecution was after the second prong, outside the usual course of professional practice. Judge Grenade amended her jury instruction according to the prosecution's presentation. Instead of using the RCL single element offense theory, Judge Grenade instructed the jury to consider both elements, either did not have a legitimate medical purpose, or did not do so in the usual course of professional practice. The Moore case law should not apply to my case. Dr. Moore was convicted of violating 21 U.S.C.S. subsection 841A, 1, 
for allegedly prescribing large quantities of methadone to treat heroin addicts and charge sliding scale fees based on the amount of methadone prescribed. In Moore, the government's position was that Dr. Moore's conduct was inconsistent with all accepted methods of treating addicts, i.e. he in fact operated as a drug pusher. The narrow sets of facts in Moore, according to this court, determined that Dr. Moore was prosecuted under the steeper subsection 841A, 1, rather than subsection 829. Our case, however, is way different. Both defendants were fellowship-trained, multi-board certified interventional pain management physicians who had provided multidisciplinary pain management to patients suffering from chronic pain. There is a material difference between our case and more. There was ample evidence showing that PPSA utilized a multidisciplinary approach in treating chronic pain. For example, my expert witness Dr. Jeff Gooden, fellowship-trained and quadruple board certified in anesthesia, pain management, addiction medicine, and hospice and palliative care medicine, TR. February 10, 2017, p. 5159-10, testified. There wasn't a single chart of Dr. Ruan's I reviewed that did not include, what we call in the pain field, multimodal techniques. That means Dr. Ruan tried everything at hand, physical therapy and behavior therapy, injections, medicine that had nothing to do with opioids. So every chart contained numerous attempts at finding treatment other than opioids to manage the pain. Id, p. 5127-28. Dr. Christopher Garibo, fellowship-trained and double-boarded in anesthesia and pain management and also an associate professor of anesthesiology and orthopedics at the New York School of Medicine, TR. February 15, 2017, p. 5932-33, testified. I found Dr. Ruan's treatment in many ways exemplary, LT was quite impressive and exemplary treatment, that's evidence of somebody who is highly skilled, Dr. Ruan engaged in more advanced interventional therapies, encouraged them to have a drug delivery system implanted, where you can cut down the overall dosing, by a factor of 100 to 200, id, p, 5944 to 45. Dr. Garibo was appreciative that we made use of spinal infusion pumps in selected patients so as to cut down the overall opioid dosage patients received by a factor of 100 to 200. Dr. Garibo also testified that, Dr. Ruan's care was clearly multimodal and multidisciplinary that it was clearly in the higher end of the standard of care. Id, p. 5945. Dr. Couch's expert witness, Professor Carol Warfield, a world-renowned pain management expert, the Lowenstein Distinguished Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School under whom the Pain Management Clinic of Beth Israel Hospital of Harvard Medical School was named, TR. February 8, 2017, p. 4661, testified that Dr. Couch used a number of non-opioid medications, lots of nerve blocks, various treatments in addition to opioids. LD, p. 4667, she also opined, T here were also a number of other treatments, which is very, very typical of a pain management center a combination of nerve blocks, epidural steroid injection, other type of medications along with opioids. Id, p. 4669. Based on the above testimony, PPSA was completely distinguishable from Moore. The specific set of facts in Moore were lacking in our case. We should not have been indicted under CSA 841A, 1, let alone being so convicted and affirmed by the 11th Circuit. Moore's outside the usual course of professional practice is pliable and insidious. Since there is no statutory definition of outside the usual course of professional practice, this standard can be easily manipulated by the prosecution. On the one hand, on its face, it sounds benign or harmless, but that is only a misconception. When this court used the term outside the usual course of professional practice to prosecute Dr. Moore 45 years ago, 
it represented an element of crime used to penalize drug dealers and drug kingpins. It was based on a narrow set of facts, where Dr. Moore allegedly prescribed large quantities of methadone to drug addicts and charged sliding scale fees based on the amount of methadone prescribed, i.e., Dr. Moore allegedly acted as a drug pusher. In other courts, outside the usual course of professional practice, unlike other crimes such as murder, rape, or bank robbery, with which the jurors are a lot more familiar, few jurors can truly appreciate the gravity of this term. When courts used outside the usual course of professional practice to explain the criminal liability standard, namely outside the usual course of professional practice, the entire reasoning was circular, which would not help the jury to understand what exactly the criminal liability standard meant. Most significantly at my trial, the Moore's language outside the usual course of professional practice was used equivocally to the disadvantage of the defendants. The vagueness of this term allows the government experts to say whatever they are paid to say. The prosecutorial strategy was to have the jury hear this term as often as possible. For example, in the direct examination Dr. David Greenberg alone. The jury heard usual course of professional practice more than 70 times, tr. January 12, 2017, p. 578-93. Government's expert testimony of my outside the usual course of professional practice was unreliable. The prosecutors clearly knew the specific qualifications required for being a pain management specialist because they correctly placed the pain physician criteria, PPC, in our first superseding indictment, which states, The discipline of pain medicine is an accepted and recognized medical subspecialty. Legitimate and qualified medical experts have specialized knowledge, education, training, and experience and utilize a multidisciplinary approach, is recognized by state regulatory boards as a subspecialty of anesthesiology physical medicine and rehabilitation, neurology, and psychiatry, which are recognized as primary specialties. Fellowship training programs exist for purpose of further education in the subspecialty of pain medicine, making graduates eligible for board certification in pain medicine. First superseding indictment, P. 1. Based on the PPG, neither Dr. Altman nor Dr. Greenberg weren't even board eligible. Dr. Altman completed a residency in internal medicine, not in one of the four primary specialties listed above. She worked as a hospitalist in a local hospital, TR. February 6, 2017, p. 4225. Dr. Greenberg had not undergone residency training in any specialty. An irony appearing in Dr. Altman's resume, provided by the government, is that she listed a detailed section called DEA experience, which stood out, spanning from page 1 to page 2 of a loosely typed two-page document. Unlike other physicians who would provide their special expertise, board certifications, academic affiliations, and clinical publications, Dr. Altman's CV provided something like this. DEA Experience Dr. Altman's DEA experience became her marketable expertise, and she actually bragged about her success in prosecution of other healthcare professionals as if she were a prosecutor. On this basis, her expert testimony would always be biased and prejudicial. She had pocketed huge sums of money from DOJ-DEA, over $325,000, TR. February 6, 2017, p. 4406. Ironically, the money Dr. Altman brought in matched the amount that Dr. Greenberg had collected working for DOJ-DEA, $320,000, TR. January 23, 2017, p. 801 the prosecutors retained Drs. Greenberg and Altman because they would be willing to say whatever was needed as long as they got paid. Both the District Court and the 11th Circuit heavily relied on Dr. Greenberg's testimony to secure and sustain my convictions. Dr. Greenberg was the leading government expert witness. He was on the witness stand for two full days, T.R. 
February 16, 2017, p. 6024. He reviewed 20 PPSA patient files, tr. January 12, 2017, p. 591. He was the only government expert who had reviewed five patients of mine that carried substantive drug counts, namely Diane Greathouse, Kimberly Lowe, Eric Gist, Deborah Walker, and John Bossarg, count 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, respectively. The trial record dedicated to Dr. Greenberg's testimony was just shy of 400 pages, tr. January 12, 2017, p. 556 to 719 and tr. January 13, 2017, p. 734 to 956. Dr. Greenberg's testimony played a central role in securing and sustaining my convictions. His testimony was repeatedly referenced in the government's brief by the DOJ appellate attorney, Sonia M. Ralston, dated October, 221-2018. In fact, it was cited 78 times, 61 times in the text and 17 times in the footnotes. In its decision on my direct appeal. United States v. Ruan, 966F. 3D1011, 2020 US App. Lexus 21367, 11th Sir. 2020, the 11th Circuit extensively cited Dr. Greenberg's testimony in the section of discussion of sufficiency relating to my substantive drug dispensing counts 8, 9, 11, and 12, filling more than a dozen pages of the record, id, at 49-63. Dr. Greenberg was unqualified as a pain expert and his testimony was unreliable. Dr. Greenberg admitted twice in his direct testimony that he did not have any residency training, tr. January 12, 2017, p. 563, id, p. 564, yet, on cross-examination, he claimed he had done some pain procedures in his residency. tr. January 13, 2017, p. 903. He admitted he was not board certified in pain medicine or pain management, id, p. 784. He admitted that he did not treat lower back pain or phantom limb pain, id, p. 801. He also admitted that he had received about $320,000 for working for the DOJ-DEA as witness or consultant, id. p. 801. In addition, he admitted that he lied under oath when he testified in a state court in Arizona in 2012, id. p. 848-49, and that he lied under oath in the instant trial, id. p. 858. After completing his testimony, he told the prosecutors that he was just diagnosed to have dementia, tr. January 17, 2017, p. 965. Most remarkably, he told the prosecutors himself that he was unreliable and his facts were unreliable, id, p. 964. Inconsistencies, misinterpretations, contradictions, and errors were replete in Dr. Greenberg's testimony. In fact, the prosecutors ended up filing a motion, under seal, over the weekend seeking a judicial order to disqualify Dr. Greenberg and his testimony on the ground of his mental incompetency id, p. 964. The motion states. At several points during both his direct and cross-examinations, Dr. Greenberg was confused about what material he had reviewed, this confusion appeared more pronounced toward the end of each day. Dr. Greenberg also appeared to struggle when asked to perform certain tasks, according to Dr. Greenberg, he received a call from his wife during lunch break on January 13, 2017 she informed him that test results showed he had early onset Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Greenberg explained that he had been tested for dementia two weeks ago, he explained that he had been in denial until he learned his fate from his wife. Motion name, P, 2-3. to 
It also appeared that the prosecutors had negotiated with my counsel regarding some damage control measures. According to the email from my counsel Mr. Knisley to Dr. Couch's counsel Mr. Sharman and others on January 15, 2017, the prosecutors appeared to have proposed. The plan of the government will be to strike the testimony and therefore exclude any effective closing argument about the witness, giving up the counts he talked about. They believe the strength of the rest of the case can prevail. Also they want a jury admonition by the court that the witness was a nut and we did not know it. Undeniably, all parties including Judge Grenade knew that Dr. Greenberg and his testimony were unreliable. However, instead of throwing out Dr. Greenberg's unreliable testimony, Judge Grenade kept it and submitted it to the jury for deliberation. Admission of Dr. Greenberg's legal conclusion of violated Rule 704A and the equivocal uses of Moore's outside the usual course of professional practice. In Commodore's Entertainment Corp. v. McClary, 879F.3D1114, 2018 U.S. App. Lexus 518, 11th Sir. 2018, the 11th Circuit held that, according to the Federal Rules of Evidence, Fed. R. Evid, Rule 704A, experts may not testify to the legal implication of conduct or tell the jury what result to reach. Rather, the court must be the jury's own source of law, and questions of law are not subject to expert testimony. Courts must remain vigilant against the admission of legal conclusions, and an expert witness may not substitute for the court in charging the jury regarding the applicable law. Thus, a district court must take adequate steps to protect against the danger that an expert's opinion would be accepted as a legal conclusion. In United States v. Diaz, 876F.3D1194, 2017 U.S. App. Lexus, 9th Sir. 2017, the 9th Circuit, however, allowed the government experts' uses of phrases such as outside the usual course of professional practice and legitimate medical purpose. It reasoned that these phrases were used in their ordinary, everyday sense and do not have a separate, distinct and specialized legal significance apart from common parlance. To me, that is exactly the root of the problem with the more language, outside the usual course of professional practice. Essentially, these phrases have been used by the courts equivocally. For example, when examined for admissibility, the court would argue it in their ordinary and everyday sense usefulness, thus justifying its admission. Once admitted, these ordinary statements morph into crime element containing or legal conclusion reaching statements that equate them to the criminal liability standard used to penalize drug kingpins. The ploy of using such language equivocally by the courts allowed the government experts to improperly infuse the jury with the term outside the usual course of professional practice during their testimony, therefore, condition the jurors' minds to falsely conclude that the physicians practiced outside the usual course of professional practice, even though the jury was never clearly instructed as to what the term really entailed. Had the language been clear-cut and specific such as those in the crime elements of murder, bank robbery, or kidnapping, it would have been obvious that such language drawing legal conclusions by experts would not be allowed. This is precisely why the more language outside the usual course of professional practice is so insidious and deceiving, and courts have misused and even abused it in unfairly prosecuting physicians who provided needed medical care to their patients, in violation of the accused's due process rights. This is one of the most important reasons why the court should take the instant case to revisit the 45-year-old Moore case law, examining the problems associated with equivocal use of Moore's language outside the usual course of professional practice. As shown below, this term was a catch-all phrase at my trial. Examples of low threshold at which outside the usual course of professional practice was used at trial. In direct examination of Dr. Greenberg by Ms. Griffin regarding the care rendered to my patient Deborah Walker, count 11. 
Q you didn't notice any initialing on the lab report to show that Dr. Ruan had reviewed the lab report showing the inconsistencies? Uh no, I didn't see that. Q would that be outside the usual course of professional practice, rather than just a mistake to inquire about the inconsistent drug test? Uh yes. TR. January 12, 2017. P. 640. Regarding the care rendered to Diane Greathouse, count 8. Q and was that prescribing outside the usual course of professional practice? A uh, yes, absolutely. It underscore. P. 651. Regarding the care rendered to patient Kimberly Lowe, count 9. Q did you determine there were any referrals to a psychiatrist or any kind of physical therapy? A uh, no. Q is that outside the usual course of professional practice for the pain clinic? A uh, yes, I would say so. Absolutely. Id. P. 641. Dr. Greenberg criticized me extensively on my care to patient John Bossarg, count 12, taking seven pages of trial transcript, tr. January 12, 2017, p. 615 to 622. Mr. Bossarg was referred to me by Dr. Regina Benjamin, the former Surgeon General of the United States, tr. January 13, 2017, p. 872, for his lower back pain and knee pain. Mr. Bossarg had history of 11 right knee surgeries and one left knee surgery for severe gouty arthritis. He also had colon cancer and history of partial colon resection. Dr. Greenberg's chief criticism was that I put him on butorphanol without first detoxing him off his opioids, and that butorphanol was a poor choice of drug because it would increase cardiac workload, in view of Bossarg's high blood pressure. The following dialogue occurred during direct examination of Dr. Greenberg by Ms. Griffin. Q. H. He was given. Butorphanol? A uh, yeah. Q in the controlled substance opioids, is that right? A uh, yes, that's correct. And that was without recommended detoxification, prior to being put on the butorphanol. Q, H have you determined if his treatment by Dr. Ruan was outside the usual course of professional practice? A uh, most definitely it was outside the usual course of professional practice. The package insert is full of all types of warnings. LD, P, 621-22. Q does it have any impact on the heart? A uh, yes, it does. That particular medication increases the amount of work that the heart has to perform. Q so that would be outside the USU.L course of professional practice? A uh, yes, outside the usual course of professional practice, id, p, 619. The next day, in cross-examination, it was revealed butorphanol was not prescribed by me, it was prescribed by Dr. Benjamin, T.R. January 13, 2017, p. 873-74. In the above testimony, Dr. Greenberg determined for the jury that my practice was outside the usual course of professional practice. He directly introduced the crime element, outside the usual course of professional practice prong, to substitute the jury's legal conclusion, in violation of Rule 704A. What made all this possible is the pliable and amorphous criminal liability standard, outside the usual course of professional practice from Moore. Based on the above examples, outside the usual course of professional practice was used as an everyday sense catch-all phrase. When such a pliable or essentially non-existent standard is used, the accused is at the greatest disadvantage, because the outside the usual course of the professional practice, the criminal liability standard for prosecution under CSA 841 becomes whatever the paid government experts say it is. The constitutional guarantee of the presumption of innocence is completely destroyed with the use of this catch-all phrase, outside the usual course of the professional practice, because physicians prosecuted would need to take the stand to repute the government expert's false testimony, line by line, 
sentence by sentence, to explain to the jury how they practiced in good faith to help their patients, and to defend every milligram of controlled medication that they prescribed in helping their patients. Thus, the government's burden to prove the defendant's guilt becomes the defendant's burden to prove their innocence. Once convicted under Moore's outside the usual course of professional practice criminal standard, the physicians would inevitably be subject to cruel penalties under the CSA 841A. This is fundamentally unfair. Outside the usual course of professional practice was improperly elicited by the use of leading questions in violation of Rule 611, c. All of the foregoing sample testimony where the legal conclusion of outside the usual course of professional practice was elicited through improper use of leading questions. Leading questions are those that suggest a specific answer to the question and seek a yes or a no response. Rule 611c of Fed. Our EVID states leading questions should not be used on direct examinations except as necessary to develop witnesses' testimony. Federal Court Rules, 2019. Examining the rulings made by Judge Grenade reveals a strange pattern. In the early phase of the trial when the prosecutors were the examining attorneys, Judge Grenade largely allowed the prosecutors to lead. Later on, she started to reverse herself. In fact, she gave two admonitions against using leading questions. Both admonitions were to the defense counsel, B, but I won't allow you to lead them. T.R. January 25, 2017, P. 2472, but don't lead her. T.R. February 13, 2017, P. 5397. The first three objections occurred during Mr. Bodnar's direct examination of the first government witness, DEA Diversion Investigator Susanna Herkert. Q-fentanyl does not have a legitimate medical purpose, doesn't it? A yes. Mr. Knisley, objection. Leading. The court, overruled. Q in your experience have you seen any pill mills with a cash transaction for over $20,000 worth of fentanyl? Mr. Knisley, objection. Leading. The court, overruled. Q how about large volumes of the 60 and 80 oxycontin? A yes. Mr. Knisley, objection. Leading. The court, overruled, tr. January 5, 2017, p. 167 69. Despite knowing that Rule 611c prohibits leading questions in direct examination, Judge Grenade successively made erroneous, self contradictory rulings, three in a row, to the first set of properly raised objections. These rulings sent a biased message to the prosecutors, signaling to them that their misconduct was condoned. At the same time, another subtext was sent to the defense don't humiliate yourself by raising such questions as they would be overruled. Thus, at the beginning of the trial, Judge Grenade's erroneous rulings clearly and arrogantly set a tone against the defense counsel, discouraging them from raising further objections to leading questions inappropriately utilized by the prosecutors. An additional harmful effect is that these rulings might have also sent a false impression to the jury, to imply that the defense counsel was perhaps unprincipled and desperate, who would try anything just to slow down the prosecutorial progression. As a consequence, leading questions in direct examinations by the prosecutors became pervasive, persistent, and pronounced. They were largely used to deliberately mislead the jury by poisoning their minds with prejudicial and false testimony that could not have been brought to court without using leading questions. This rampant use of leading questions branched out from the first string of faulty rulings shown above. Take for example the second leading question of the above, in your experience have you seen any pill mills with a cash transaction for over $20,000 worth of fentanyl? This question contains extremely prejudicial and false information and it could not be simply rephrased using open-ended questions. It implied that PPSA was in cash transactions for $20,000 worth of fentanyl, 
when Mr. Bodnar knew this was false because he had admitted in his opening statement that PPSA was not a cash pay clinic. TR. January 5, 2017. P. 28. PPSA was not a cash pay only. In fact, they wouldn't accept that. When an insurance company pays for a branded product such as a medication, most of its cost is paid toward the proprietary right of that medication, rather than the material or the compound itself. For example, considering subsis, it is an uniquely patented sublingual spray system on which the company had spent a lot of money in its research and development, conducting clinical trials, getting FDA approval, obtaining patent right, and others, that ultimately makes subsis an expensive drug. So the expression of pill mills with a cash transaction for over $20,000 worth alfentanil is ludicrous. Such exceedingly prejudicial testimonies via inappropriate leading questions from the prosecutors were commonplace during the government presentation. Judge Grenade's rulings on objections raised to leading questions in direct examination revealed a disturbing pattern of inconsistency. For example, over a dozen times she overruled the defendant's properly raised objections. T.R. January 6, 2017. P. 167. Id. P. 168. Id. P. 169. Tr. January 19, 2017. P. 76. Id. P. 197. Tr. January 24, 2017. P. 2454. Tr. January 25, 2017. P. 2595. Tr. January 26, 2017. P. 2975, id, p, 2981, tr. January 30, 2017, p, 3369, id, p, 3479, id, p, 3488, tr. February 1, 2017, p, 3790. In contrast, there was not a single ruling of overruled to more than a dozen objections raised by prosecutors to leading questions used in direct examination by the defense counsel, tr. 2717, p. 4501, id, p. 4613, id, p. 4653, tr. February 8, 2017, p. 4820, tr. February 9, 2017, p. 4948, id, p, 5064, tr. February 10, 2017, p, 5130, id, p, 5224, id, p, 5226, id, p, 5630, id, p, 5631, tr. February 13, 2017, p, 5388, id, p, 5473. The stark difference indicates a strong partiality, especially seen in light of Judge Grenade's unilateral admonition to the defense counsel against the use of leading questions in direct examination. Both the Seventh Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit downplayed the harm of using leading questions, opining that most of the competent lawyers can rephrase a leading question to elicit the desired testimony, United States v. Coleman, 914 F.3D 508, 2019 U.S. App. Lexus 2196, 7th Sir. 2019, United States v. Roy 855 F.3D 1133, 2017 U.S. App. Lexus 7354, 11th Sir. 2017, but this argument does not apply to the crime element containing leading questions shown earlier in Dr. Greenberg's direct examination.
Those questions specifically adopted the crime element in 21 CFR 1306.04 and more, i.e. outside the usual course of professional practice, and they could not have been rephrased and elicited using open-ended questions. For this reason, such questions are extremely prejudicial because they were introduced into the court under the guise of common-sense language but subsequently were used equivocally to mean crime element or legal conclusion to substitute the jury's judgment. Such calculated misconduct by the prosecutors and their government expert witnesses, together with Judge Grenade partial condoning and indulgence violated RT.LI704A and Rule 611C as well as my due process rights. Government's creation of the straw man are prescribing Holy Trinity and imputing it to our outside the usual course of professional practice. Using Holy Trinity to prejudice against the defendants, the government introduced it to represent an addictive cocktail. It is well recognized that the Christian dogma of Holy Trinity, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, is a sacred unity that is worshipped by nearly all Christians. In my trial, the prosecutors intended it to mean an addictive cocktail of controlled substances. At the time of my arrest in May, 2015 t there was only one reference in the PubMed database, the most authoritative scientific database, namely the article by Matthias Forrester entitled Ingestion of Hydrocodone, Carisoprotol, and Alprazolam in Combinations reported to Texas Poison Center, published in April, 2011, in the Journal of Addictive Disease. In this paper, the combination of hydrocodone, carisoprotol, and alprazolam was defined as Holy Trinity, or Houston Cocktail, or TRIO. This definition was cited in cases such as United States v. Geralt, 682 Fed. Apex. 394, 2017 U.S. App. Lexus 4326, 6th Sir. 2017, United States v. Shelton, 369 F Sup. 3D 824, 2019 U.S. Dist. Lexus 28191, 2019, and United States v. Olfetaba, 2019 U.S. Dist. Lexus 202017, 2019. The government hired Dr. Sprague to expand the definition of Holy Trinity in literature for our prosecution. In the summer of 2016, one year after our arrest, the prosecutors informed the defense that they would use Dr. John E. Sprague as their expert witness, who would testify on the danger of Holy Trinity. Dr. Sprague was associated with the Ohio Attorney General's Center for Future of the Forensic Sciences. In September 2016, about 16 months after our arrest, an article entitled The Pharmacology and Toxicology of the Holy Trinity, by Joseph Horsfall and John E. Sprague, appeared online in a journal called Basic and Clinical Pharmacology. Prior to this, Dr. Sprague had published a few dozen articles, but none involving any opioid, benzodiazepine, or carisoprotol. Horsfall had never published anything under PubMed. The definition of Holy Trinity in the Horsfall and Sprague paper was expanded. It included any opioid, not just hydrocodone, any benzodiazepine, not just alprazolam, and carisoprotol. The only paper they cited to support the definition of their newly expanded definition was the Forrester paper. Therefore, for the first time, a new but expanded definition of Holy Trinity appeared in medical literature. This new definition was introduced into our trial by DEA Diversion Investigator Susanna Herkert, T.R. January 6, 2017, p. 122. Under this new definition, more PPSA patients could be labeled as Holy Trinity recipients. This was the purpose of the Sprague's publication, nevertheless, even under the expanded Holy Trinity, only a very small fraction of PPSA patients received Holy Trinity, for example, about 5.2% of Dr. Couch's patients received such combination prescriptions, TR. January 7, 2017, p. 392-93.
None from PPSA side knew what Holy Trinity meant and government witnesses testified it was a slang or law enforcement term. There was no evidence that any PPSA patient or staff member ever used the term Holy Trinity. I testified that I had never heard of Holy Trinity in a pain clinic. Professor Warfield, a world-class pain expert under whom the Pain Management Center at Beth Israel Hospital of Harvard Medical School was named, T.R. February 8, 2017, p. 4661, testified that she had no idea what it meant other than its spiritual meaning, T.R. February 8, 2017, p. 4702. Even cooperating government witness, Gary Duthit, a former patient of mine, who was later unrelatedly charged with a felony for heroin trafficking, said he had no idea what Holy Trinity meant, T.R. January 30, 2017, p. 3448. Several government witnesses testified that Holy Trinity was a slang term, or rather a law enforcement term, for example, Dr. Altman acknowledged that eel was a slang term, T.R. February 6, 2017, p. 4370. DEA agent Paul Short admitted that Holy Trinity was a slang word, T.R. January 9, 2017, p. 390. Deputy Sean Kelly told the jury that Holy Trinity was a law enforcement term and they, PPSA staff and patients, would not use it. T.R. January 20, 2017, p. 1806. Even Mr. Bodnar incidentally acknowledged that DEA agent Paul Short's working at DEA to be Short's basis for being familiar with the term Holy Trinity in Paul Short's direct examination by Mr. Bodnar, T.R. 1 9 17 p. 350, q. based. On your experience working at DEA, are you familiar with a name for that drug combination? A. It's often referred to as Holy Trinity. Nothing medically wrong with Holy Trinity and its admission was repeatedly objected to by the defense. There is 11 other wrong medically to use such combinational drug therapy. Professor Warfield testified, that is absolutely within the usual course of professional practice, you can call it a cocktail, it's done very commonly to treat anything, TR. February 8, 2017, p. 4706, even government witnesses Dr. Altman and DEA Diversion Investigator Herkert testified that there was nothing intrinsically wrong in prescribing such a drug combination, TR. January 30, 2017, p. 3276, TR. January 6, 2017, p. 145. The defense counsel vehemently objected to its admission first during Herkert's direct examination by Bodnar. Q and is there a term for that type of, cocktail? But yes, it's considered a drug cocktail, or the Holy Trinity. Mr. Essig, Your Honor, I am going to object to that testimony. The court, on what ground? Mr. Essig, there's no relevance shown to this case whatsoever. The court, overruled, T.R. January 6, 2017, p. 121. Another timely objection was raised during the sidebar discussion, where my counsel Mr. Gordon Armstrong repeatedly argued that Holy Trinity was a government argument. If you look at it, that's purely argument, we think that's inappropriate. We think that's extremely prejudicial, it's argument. It's not in the data as cocktail. That's government's assertion, that's not a medical term and that's not in the data. That's argument by the government. So we would object to that. T.R. January 9, 2017, p. 251. Counsel's argument is not evidence. Schoen v. Fresh D. 922F.3D1211. 2019 U.S. App. Lexus 12754, 11th Sir. 2019, United States v. Ganji, 880 F.3D 760, 
2018 US app. Lexus 2279, 5th Sir. 2018. In fact, in Judge Grenade's preliminary jury instruction, she actually gave an admonition that the statements, the arguments, and the questions by the lawyers are not evidence. TR. January 5, 2017, p. 8. Yet, Judge Grenade contradicted herself when she improperly admitted Holy Trinity as evidence over the defense counsel's correctly raised objections. Massive Holy Trinity related testimonies were admitted over defendants' objections. Judge Grenade, in blatant partiality, overruled the above correctly raised objections. Massive testimonies related to Holy Trinity poured into trial court. The following government witnesses testified on Holy Trinity, DEA Diversion Investigator Susanna Herkert, TR. 1.617, p. 121-22, id, p. 173-74, DEA Analyst Paul Short, TR. January 9, 2017, p. 350-54, Deputy Patrick Sean Kelly, TR. January 29, 2017, p. 180607, Medical Expert Witness Rahul Vora, TR. January 23, 2017, p. 2192-93, TR. January 24, 2017, p. 2434, United Healthcare Representative Doug Moore, TR. January 25, 2017, p. 2633-34, id, p. 2643, former PPSA nurse practitioner Bridget Parker, TR. February 1, 2017, p. 3827, and medical expert witness Dr. Tricia Altman, TR. February 6, 2017, p. 4253 to 54, id, p. 4272 to 75, id, p. 4278, id, 4280, id, p. 4283 to 84, ld, p. 4287 to 88, id, p. 4290, id, p. 4292, id, p. 4295. The following examples are taken for more. Altman's direct examination by Bodnar. This examination took place on day 19 of the trial, with Dr. Altman being government witness number 56. The first three questions were related to Orr. Couch's patient Ms. Brenda Ward and the last question was related to my patient Ms. Sandra Wimberly. Q. So did she receive the Holy Trinity on this date? A. Uh, yes, sir. T.R. February 6, 2017. P. 4278. Q. Even after being told she might be doctor shopping, she still received the Holy Trinity? A. Uh, right. Q. Is that within the usual course of practice? A. Uh, no, sir. Id. 4280. Q. Does she again continues month after month to get the Holy Trinity? A. Uh, yes. Sir. Id. Q and here does it show with the clonopin, the soma, and the opana that she is still receiving the Holy Trinity? A uh, yes, sir. Id, P, 4288. First, none of the prescriptions described above met the true definition of Holy Trinity based on the original paper by Forrester, because none of the above was the hydrocodone, alprazolam, and chrysoprotol combination. Under the new, expanded definition, however, Mr. Bodnar was able to put the label Holy Trinity on these prescriptions. Second, Dr. Altman concluded that the alleged prescribing Holy Trinity was outside the usual course of professional practice, namely the crime element itself in 21 CFR 1306.04. In other words, Dr. Altman drew a legal conclusion for the jury to substitute the jury's own, 
in violation of Rule 704A. Third, the introduction of Holy Trinity and outside the usual course of professional practice were done with the improper use of leading questions. This is actually a good example to show how rampant the prosecutorial leading questions were used, as a result of Judge Grenade's erroneous rulings on such questions. The testimony of Holy Trinity as well as the improper uses of leading questions started with DEA Diversion Agent Susanna Herkert, Government Witness No. 1, and were continuing during the examination of Dr. Altman, Government Witness No. 56. This gives an idea how pervasive the prosecutors' uses of leading questions were and how hard the prosecutors pushed along the line of Holy Trinity. Trial court violated multiple federal court rules by improperly admitting Holy Trinity-related testimony. Judge Grenade violated Rule 104b, Rule 401, 402, and 403. Rule 104b dictates that the relevancy of an item of evidence depends upon the existence of a particular preliminary fact. Thus when a spoken statement is relied upon to prove a notice to X, it is without probative value unless X heard it. Federal Court Rules, 2019, the admission of Holy Trinity-related evidence violated Rule 104b, as none of the PPSA physicians, staff members, even patients knew what Holy Trinity meant in a clinical setting, because it was a slang term, or a law enforcement term, or a government argument, and thus it does not have a probative value namely it is devoid of any relevance, just as what was objected to by Defense Counsel, T.R. January 6, 2017, p. 121, there is no relevance shown to this case whatsoever, because of the irrelevance, its admission violated Rule 401 and 402, both of which require the admitted evidence to be relevant. It also violated Rule 403 due to its unduly prejudicial effects, the Holy Trinity is strictly a Christian doctrine, and when this term was used by the government, to mean an addictive cocktail being illegally prescribed to PPSA patients, at a criminal trial in a federal court of Southern District of Alabama, one of the most conservative regions in the nation, the overall prejudicial impact cannot be fully assessed. Further, its admission by the improper use of leading questions and direct examinations violated Rule 611c, and the admission of crime element containing language, i.e. outside the usual course of professional practice by Dr. Altman also violated Rule 704a which prohibits admission of expert testimony that draws a legal conclusion for the jury. Mischaracterization of trial evidence respecting Holy Trinity by the appellate court and egregious government misconduct violated my due process rights. Judge Kugler mischaracterized the trial evidence respecting the Holy Trinity. In his 137-page opinion, he mentioned Holy Trinity apostrophe one twice, once at the beginning in the trial evidence section, the other at the end in the restitution calculation section. In the former, he wrote, the combination of these three types of drugs, which the government referred to as the Holy Trinity at trial, is popular among substance abusers because of its euphoric effect, yet it is highly addictive and can increase the chances of users' death. Ruan, 2020 U.S. App. Lexus 32102, at 8-9. Judge Kugler downplayed what the prosecution had done in presenting Holy Trinity-related testimonies to the jury. In our case, Holy Trinity was essentially a straw man deliberately created by the government for our prosecution. Using their inflammatory rhetoric, the prosecutors effectively demolished their straw man before the jury, as though it had proven their case that we practiced outside the usual course of professional practice. The government went so far as to hire Dr. Sprague to alter and expand the definition of Holy Trinity in medical literature, 16 months after RR.st, to aid the prosecution. Judge Grenade, over the defendant's vigorous objections, improperly admitted massive testimonies of Holy Trinity, and allowed the government's unqualified medical experts, for example, Dr. Altman, to give expert testimony insinuating our alleged prescribing of Holy Trinity to be outside the usual course of professional practice. 
Judge Kugler's mischaracterization of trial evidence dissembled what really had happened at court and was at odds with what the jury had seen and heard at trial. Holy Trinity-related testimonies were admitted as major and substantial evidence of our alleged acting outside the usual course of professional practice, completely unlike what Judge Kugler lightly referenced to in his opinion. Again the insidious and deceiving nature of the Moore language, outside the usual course of professional practice is evident when considering its use in association with Holy Trinity in my case. As a result of the lack of statutory definition of outside of the usual course of professional practice, anything could be painted to be outside the usual course of practice. In other words, this criminal liability standard from Moore could be easily manipulated and exploited by the government. All the prosecutors ever needed was to pay some government experts to say whatever was necessary. The district court kept a blind eye, allowing outside the usual course of professional practice to be used equivocally in court. As a result, I was deprived of my due process rights and my criminal proceedings were fundamentally unfair. I respectfully make this plea to the court to review these issues and to reverse my convictions. 24. Trial court egregiously abdicated its gatekeeping role in admitting expert testimony of outside the usual course of professional practice, justifying plain error review by the court pursuant to Rule 24.1a. Rule 24.1a of the Supreme Court of the United States states, at its option, however, the court may consider a plain error not among the questions presented but evident from the record and otherwise within its jurisdiction to decide. In Silber v. United States, 1962, 370 U.S. 717, 8 liters. Ed. 2D 798, 82 South Court 1287, the Supreme Court held, while ordinarily we do not take note error not called to the attention of the Court of Appeals not properly raised here, that rule is not without exception. The Court has power to notice a plain error though it was not assigned. Citation omitted, in exceptional circumstances, Appellate courts may notice errors if the errors are obvious, or if they otherwise seriously affected the fairness, integrity or public reputation of judicial proceedings. Citation omitted. DEA DOJ racking up numbers fabricating prosecution of doctors. DEA corruption. The trial error committed by Judge Grenade in keeping Dr. Greenberg's unreliable, legal conclusion drawing testimony could not be plainer. Rule 702 of Fed. R. Evid. Provides, a witness who is qualified as an expert witness by knowledge, skill, experience, training or education may testify in the form of an opinion. Federal Court Rules, 2019, in Daubert v. Merrill Dow Farms. Incorporated, 1993, 509 U.S. 579, 125 liters. Ed. 2D 469, 113 South Court 2786, this court held that under Rule 702, the trial judge must ensure that any and all scientific testimony or evidence admitted is not only relevant, but reliable, id, at 589. Dr. Greenberg failed both prongs of the Daubert. First he was unqualified as I have shown earlier, LLLE3. Based on the government's own information, the pain physician criteria in my first superseding indictment, Dr. Greenberg was not even board eligible. Judge Grenade however, ignored his lack of qualification and abdicated his gatekeeping role and violated the Daubert Rule and Rule 702. Dr. Greenberg's testimony was unreliable even according to Dr. Greenberg's own words, when he confessed to the prosecutors he was not reliable and his facts were not reliable. Even the prosecutors had filed a motion seeking a court order to throw his testimony out of court on the ground of incompetency. Nevertheless, Judge Grenade kept his testimony and also submitted it to the jury for deliberation. Judge Grenade blatantly abandoned her role as a neutral gatekeeper in violation of the Daubert Rule and Rule 702. Such egregious error in violation of Daubert and Rule 702 could not be plainer. 
Undeniably, this has seriously affected my rights as well as the fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial proceedings. The court should use the instant case to re-emphasize its power to notice a plain error that has been missed or ignored by the appellate court. I'll respectfully plead for a plain error review by the Supreme Court pursuant to Rule 24.1a. For now, you are within. You are within the norms.com, Winton Marsalis Concerto for Trumpet and Two Oboes, 1984. The Norms